The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was telling was indicating that he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. My name is Russ Ramsey. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Presbyterian Church. I pastor the Cool Springs location, and I've uh, been going back and forth between here and there. Uh, the folks at Cool Springs send their regards. I'm sh- well, I'm sure they do. I didn't ask them if they did, but they, I'm sure they do. We, we started our first Sunday out there back in October. Um, The Lord has been very kind to us, and it's fun to see this community uh, over there uh, coming together. But I'm glad to be with you. I got to preach here um, a fair amount before that started uh, out in Cool Springs and haven't been back since, and um, so I'm really glad to be here with you all. I've missed you, Um, and uh, I'm excited about preaching on this topic, too, in the sermon series. You know, where this is a new sermon series that started last week. Um, called Doubting Christianity, Examining Seven Core Reasons for Non-Belief. And I'm excited about talking about this subject uh, of suffering uh, for a couple of reasons. One is because a lot of my own personal story uh, has been marked with suffering. And two, because no one is exempt from suffering. So there's nobody in here that's going to say, this subject doesn't really intersect with my life at all, because it does. It does. So, this passage from First Peter, we're going to unpack that a little bit as we get into that. I want to say a prayer 
before we jump in. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear from you this morning and eyes to see from your word uh, things that are true. I pray that you would give us a receptivity to thinking through a subject that has the potential to be very sensitive uh, for some. And uh, we're thankful for your word and for the truth of it. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, um, almost exactly six years ago, I sat at a table on a patio at the Starbucks on 21st, uh, right there near Vanderbilt. And I was there by myself, and I had gone to that Starbucks and that patio for a very particular purpose. And that purpose, so I was there to write letters. Specifically, I was there to write five letters. In the weeks leading up to that day on that patio, I had fallen gravely ill. Uh, I had developed a bacterial infection in my heart, which had destroyed my mitral valve, and I was in heart failure. And we figured out, the doctors figured out what was wrong with me, and part of what I needed was I needed to spend a month on a course of IV antibiotics, which looked basically like a fanny pack with a pump and these bags of liquid antibiotics, real syrupy, uh, that pumped through my system 24 hours a day for four weeks. Seven gallons, I did the math, it was about seven gallons of IV antibiotics and it was 100% of my deductible. <laughs> and as soon as we got that infection under control, uh, I would need to then undergo open heart surgery to either repair or replace uh, my mitral valve. So those letters, those five letters, were to my wife and my kids. And they were in case the worst happened. I was putting my house in order. And that was a season for me that was an incredible education on the relationship between suffering and faith. With all this suffering, how can God be good? Is, is it compatible to believe in a good God and to acknowledge the suffering that is everywhere in this world? In this world, we all suffer, every one of us. It's part of the human experience. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. If I went around this room and randomly selected 10 of you and said, come up to this microphone right over here and tell us a story of your own suffering, by the time that was over, we would all be in tears because of the sorrow that that small cross-section of this room would alone bear witness to. And we would be sad for them. But we'd be sad for ourselves too because in the hearing of the stories of the suffering, 
we would be reminded of what C.S. Lewis so poignantly said. It seems to me that one can hardly say anything either good enough or bad enough about life. In this world, you will have trouble. The Apostle Peter wrote this epistle, 1 Peter, to a people who were suffering persecution. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were seeing people that they loved killed because of their faith. They knew that at any given moment that may be coming their way as well. And they were trying to discern how to move forward. Surely the idea of abandoning this faith crossed the minds of many as they asked the question, is this worth it? Is it worth professing faith and hope in Christ when this world is so hard? Or the goodness of God and suffering incompatible with each other? As a pastor, I sit with people who are suffering. I did so this week. I sat with a family that I love, that I'm close to, who is walking down a long and mysterious and seemingly endless road of affliction. And as a man who once sat in a coffee shop writing letters to my own family in case I died, and having sat with many of you, really, in your own suffering, here's what I've found. There is nothing in me that wants to shrink back from the question of can God be good in a world where there's suffering. There is nothing in me that wants to shrink back from that question, and I'll tell you why. Because I believe that the suffering we experience, the reason I want to lean in is because this is exactly the conversation we should have. And if you have a faith system, if you have a hope system, if you have some system that you look at and say, this is where my, where my, where my, my confidence that things are going to be okay resides, you need to do something with suffering. You need to do something with the role that it plays. It's a worthy discussion. And I want to give you my thesis, and then we're going to unpack it. And my thesis from this passage is this. I don't believe the reality of suffering discredits the idea of a good God. I believe that the reality of suffering proves there's a good God. You may say, that's a strong assertion to make. Let me explain why. Because if suffering is a reality for us all, and it is, nobody opts out. Everybody suffers. If suffering is a reality for us all, then we should be asking at least two fundamental questions. At least two. And those questions are these. Why does this happen? What is being done about it? Why does this happen and what is being done about it? And I'll tell you this. The gospel of Jesus Christ answers those two questions. It doesn't shrink back from them at all. It answers these two questions with an unshrinking, resolute clarity that you will not find anywhere else. So let's unpack them. Where does it come from and what's being done about it? Why does suffering happen? 
Peter begins this letter by telling these suffering Christians, you have cause to rejoice. You have cause to rejoice. Why? Because they have been born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their hope is living because of what Christ has done. In other words, their hope in the face of present suffering is that Jesus defeated death itself, the last enemy, to be destroyed. And everything else that we deal with will have to face the same power, the power of the risen Christ. Are any of you hopeful? You say, I value hope. Have you been to Hobby Lobby and bought a little sign that says hope and hung it up in your house someplace like we have? Here's the thing about hope. Hope doesn't exist without suffering. Hope doesn't exist without suffering. Hope is longing for something we don't yet have and believing we're going to get it. That's what hope is. And so if you're a person who values the idea of hope, then you've already accepted the reality of suffering. And then your hope is a protest. That's what hope is. It's a protest. It's a protest that every sad thing is going to come untrue, right? It's that, it's that one day all suffering will be reversed. It'll cease. And the Christian hope, what Peter is telling these, these people and what he's telling us and what the Lord is telling us through his word, is he's saying the Christian hope is attached to something. It's not just free-floating. It's not just wishing against bad things and, and, and believing in good things. He's saying that the Christian hope is attached to something that is already yours. It's attached to an eternal inheritance. And it's an inheritance, Peter says, that is being kept for you by the same one who keeps you. In other words, God's keeping it all together. He's keeping it all together. And one day, it's going to be ours forever never to be lost. But right now, we live in a world that is broken. Why does suffering happen? Because we live right now in a world that is broken. See, Christianity has an answer to the question of where our suffering comes from. It's not random. Suffering comes from a broken relationship with our Maker. We've rejected our Creator's right to be our God. We've made other gods for ourselves, and then we followed after them and worshipped them and hoped in them. And they've not delivered, and so in the process of rejecting God and making other gods and hoping in them and that failing, we've become frustrated. And the world that we live in becomes frustrated. And our attempts to find satisfaction apart from God have crumbled, and they've, and they've failed. And so we live in the brokenness of that. That's the testimony of Scripture from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21. The world is broken, and we are broken. It's the bad news of the gospel, right, that something is profoundly wrong here. 
Let me ask you a question. What's of greater comfort? Is it of greater comfort to say, the world is broken and here's why? Or, the world is broken and no one knows why? What's of greater comfort? The world is broken and here's why, or the world is broken and no one knows why? It's another way of asking the question, do we suffer in vain or not? Not knowing why the world is broken doesn't make it any less broken. And there's something in all of us that is asking already the question, why is this the case? And so to say there's no reason for the brokenness, it just leads us to deeper despair than seeing that there is a reason for the brokenness. And Christianity says there is a reason for the brokenness. I want to illustrate this because we've waded now into philosophical waters uh, that not knowing why the world is broken doesn't make it any less broken. To say the world is broken, is it more comforting to say it is and here's why or it is and here's not why? Uh, Let me illustrate this. I have a son. We have four kids. We're in the process of having five kids because we're adopting a little boy from China. But we have, my oldest is is a boy. His name's Chris. He's 19. When he was five, he had his first loose tooth. And he came to us one day with this kind of serious look on his face with his loose tooth. And he said, Mom, Dad, look. And he was wiggling one of his bottom teeth. It's about ready to fall out. And to ease his distress, we did what parents do. We got excited for him. And we said, oh, buddy, that's amazing. What's going to happen is when that comes out, we're going to put it under your pillow. And in the morning, there's going to be like a surprise under there, probably money. And that kid, five years old, gave us this look that said, you are answering a different question from the one I'm asking right now. (laughs) He didn't want to know what happened to his tooth after it fell out. He wanted to know, why was he coming apart? He wanted to know, why is this world going back on me all of a sudden? It's betraying me. He wanted to know the extent of the suffering that lay ahead. How far was this going to go? Was his nose going to fall off? Was he going to lose an arm? What's happening here? See, the future reward didn't help him grasp the reason for the present suffering. Something in Chris, he just, he needed to know how this worked. So I changed my tack, and I decided I'm just going to give him the honest graphic truth. And so I said, all right, man, listen, here's the deal. Your tooth is loose because it's a baby tooth, and you're a big boy and you have man teeth. And they're gro- you can't see them, but they're growing. And they're growing all in your skull right now. And they're pushing your baby teeth out. I have man teeth. They don't budge. Here, pull one of mine. And he tried to wiggle one of mine, and it didn't move. And I said, listen, this is your first loose tooth. But son, every tooth you have right now 
is eventually going to be pushed out of your face <laughs> by some bigger tooth. And here's what's going to happen. Each one of them is going to get loose, and it's going to get a little sore, and it's going to bleed like yours is bleeding now, and you're going to suffer a little bit. And then when it falls out, it's probably going to bleed even more because there's going to be this hole where your tooth used to be. But a big person tooth is going to take its place. And if you want, I can pull that tooth for you right now. He declined. <laughs> but I'll tell you this. That explanation calmed him. That was the question he was asking. It calmed him because he wasn't worried about what was happening to his tooth. He was worried about what was happening to him. And in his trauma, all we offered him at first was the teeth turn into money. And he didn't care about that. He needed to understand the graphic truth of what is happening now. Was this suffering in vain or was there a reason for it? Was there an explanation for it? Christianity has an answer to this. When it comes to sin, when it comes to brokenness, when it comes to suffering, because of sin, the world is broken and we're broken. That's why we suffer. So that's where it comes from. That's why it happens. So what's being done about it? What's being done about suffering? If, if suffering feels or seems wrong to you, and it does, doesn't it? You, suffering happens and you don't feel like it's okay. You feel like, no, this is, there's something off about this. There's something wrong about this. If suffering feels and seems wrong to you, it's because you've attached meaning to it. You've said this is not for nothing. It matters. And so shouldn't your response then involves some kind of a protest, a longing to see it end. The Christian gospel answers the question, what is being done about suffering, with some pretty radical clarity that Peter alludes to in these passages. I want to look at two answers that he gives us here. There's so many more, but two from this text. What's being done about suffering? First, our suffering is being used for good right now. And second, one day all our suffering will cease forever. That's what's being done about it. It's being used for good right now, and it's all going to end. And it's not just going to end. We're going to, believers in Christ, we're going to survive that. So it will end, and we'll keep going. So let's take that first one. It's being used for good right now. In our text, Peter says suffering produces two positive outcomes. There's a personal refinement and there's an outward witness. So he says it's a personal refinement. It's a testing like a fire. In verses 6 and 7, he says this. He says, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that, per that, that perishes those tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, he's saying suffering is a kind of a fire that, that is a refining fire. The beautiful thing about this point is I don't really need to tell you that because you already know that. 
And the reason you know that is because if I open this mic up one more time for us and said another 10 people, come forward and talk about a season in your life where you, did the mo- where, where you felt like you were shaped the most, where you, where, where you, were, you, were, you were refined and, 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 and you really kind of started to grow and understand and learn how the world worked, most of those stories would be stories of suffering. Because typically we don't have our seasons of greatest growth and development when everything's humming along and all the bills are paid and the future is clear. It's in those seasons where we don't know which way is up sometimes and we go through those things, that there's a refining that happens. We see how our trials have shaped us and what Peter is saying is don't waste that. Don't waste your suffering. It shapes you so whatever you're facing, it's wise to pray, Lord, lead me out of this transformed in some way. Whether it's a big way or a small way, Lead me out of this transformed. And then the second positive outcome, if you will, is that there's an outward witness to suffering. Our trials don't only shape us in ways that we can't always see, they shape other people too. Peter says, look, your your trials are on account of your love for Jesus. The reason you're going through this is because you love Jesus. And when you stand up, under the testing of your faith, what you're doing is you're testifying that His love is stronger than your weakness, and in this you bring honor and praise to His name, and people notice it, and they're curious about it. In our trials, we bear witness to our hope in Christ. How? Peter tells us in verses 8 and 9, he says, it looks like this, as we suffer, we love Jesus, as we're suffering, and they're not incompatible, and we rejoice in Him and are seeing the fulfillment of the salvation to which we were first called. And all of this we're doing while we've never seen Christ in person. And that kind of faith is a powerful witness to others. That people are challenged and encouraged and shaped by the stories of suffering that we go through. The other thing that's being done about suffering, besides that it's being used for good right now is this, because of Christ's suffering, no, because of Christ's resurrection, suffering will one day cease forever. It'll be done. No more. The old order of things will pass away. The new creation will come. It will be unmarred, untouched by the fall, undefiled, Peter says. And at the middle of it will be Christ, the risen Christ, the living Christ, who death couldn't even hold. And what role does he play in this? He didn't just empathize with us in our suffering. He didn't look at us and say, that must be rough. I'm sorry. You have my positive thoughts. He entered into our suffering and took it upon himself. And he did this because he loves us. In fact, he told his disciples, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And in that statement, he does two things. He tells us, I'm laying down my life for you, which is an act of love, and I'm calling you my friends. He did this because of love. He took our suffering upon himself, and he suffered in our place. In a world where everyone suffers, only, only Christianity 
offers a concrete, concrete reason to believe that it will one day end. What is that reason? There is a risen Christ. Not a metaphor, not a word picture, not a spiritual analogy to some other thing. There is a risen Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our living hope. All suffering will one day cease. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers us consolation in our present. Through the incarnation and the cross, we see that Jesus entered fully into our suffering, taking it upon himself. And the gospel offers us hope for our future. Because Jesus has defeated the power of death itself, because he gives us life in his name, we have the assurance that we are bound for an eternity that is free from suffering. It will stop. We will go on. It's hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. Nonetheless, true. And there's a concrete reason to believe it. And so I pray that the graphic truth of the gospel would bring the kind of comfort to us that could only be called what Peter describes as inexpressible joy. Like Chris's baby teeth, this world is falling apart. But there's a force behind it, pushing it out. It's pushing out the decay. It's pushing out what's temporary. And this temporary brokenness will be forced out through a coming permanent glory with the risen Christ at the center. And when it does, that will be all we know forever. Believe me when I tell you that when I wrote those five letters, which are in the top drawer of my nightstand right now, that when I wrote those letters to my wife and kids, this truth, that this temporary brokenness will be forced out through a coming permanent glory, and when it does, that will be all we'll know forever. That was in those letters. Christ has defeated the power of death. What else shall we fear? Pray with me. Lord, I thank you that the message of the gospel is not one that requires believers to stick their head in the sand and ignore the reality of the suffering and brokenness of the world, but that it is a faith that looks the brokenness of the world, the fallenness of the world, the suffering, the affliction, dead in the eye, says there is a reason for this and something has been done about it. Father, thank you that our hope is not in vain and that our suffering is not in vain. We long for the day 
when all things will be made new and suffering ceases, but we go on. Thank you for the concrete proof that we have of this in the risen Christ, that if death could not hold him and we are given life in his name and it's an eternal inheritance, a living hope, then nothing can strip that from us. And I pray, Father, for those who are struggling or questioning what to do with suffering and have not put their faith in you, that you would draw them to yourself. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.